Okay, so this text is one that we've all heard um, a lot. We've all heard what's going on, but let me get, go back a little bit and let, let's review. Jesus is sitting around with his disciples talking and ask Peter, um, or ask his, all of the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter, being kind of the spokesman, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus responds to this with a little play in words that, that maybe we don't catch in English. Simon Peter's name was Simon, and Peter is his nickname. And Peter uh, would, means rock, like a little small pebble. It's, it's almost like his nickname is Rocky. In fact, if, uh, there, there are some translations of the Bible. There's a lot of weird translations of the Bible. There's the Cotton Patch translation. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it takes the entire New Testament. Instead of it happening in Israel, it places it in 1920s Georgia. And so instead of going to Jerusalem, Jesus goes to Atlanta. Instead of going to the temple, Jesus goes to First Baptist Church Atlanta and kicks all the insurance salesmen out. And it's, it's that kind of translation. Well, there's another translation that's, that's called the Word on the Street translation, and it's the, the, the New Testament stories in Ebonics. And Peter's nickname in that translation is Rocky. And, and in this particular text, Jesus says, hey, rock, and refers to Jesus. And that's, that's actually closer to what we get than Peter because we don't think of Peter as meaning Petra, meaning rock. But Peter's name means little rock, uh, like, a, like a pebble or a rock. You'd, and it's an, the implied part of that is that a person is about as smart as a, as a rock. And so it's kind of a diminutive term. It's like, hey there, bright guy. And so what Jesus says is, Peter, little rock, upon this rock, and then the word that Jesus uses for that rock is bedrock, something that's not being not movable. Your little pebble, on that bedrock, I will build my church. And so it's important for us to understand what exactly Jesus is referring to that's the rock he'll build his church on. And it's what Peter said when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is saying that flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, Peter. That came from the father. And that's what I'm going to build my church on. It could not get any clearer. Jesus said, I will build my church. Now, if you were to go to uh, cbd.com, which is christianbookdistributor.com, it's a, a warehouse that, that uh, literally it's like Amazon for, for Christians or Amazon for Christians who can't use Amazon. And, and so if you go there and you put in the search engine, church growth, I did it this morning, 62,000 hits on books that tell us how, to, how we're supposed to grow the church. This is what this reminds me of. I don't know if this ever happened to you. This happens to me all the time. And I, I promise, I'm not trying to pick on anybody here. If you've done this to me, it's okay. Uh, but this happens to me. I, I, I need to send a text out, so I send a... Uh, it, it happens in softball, but let's, let's pick... Right now, I'm coaching the eight-year-old basketball team. So if you ever get bored, that's a fun thing to do, by the way. I'm just telling you. So I get my phone out and I say, group text to everybody. Hey, everybody, just wanted you to know we're going to be practicing this Thursday at 6 o'clock at Glencoe Elementary Gym. Send the text out. Invariably, if I do that, every time, within three or four minutes, and I look at my phone, what time? 
And I'll go, okay. And I try, not, I try really hard not to be a smart aleck on these. Six. Hiss in. Put my phone up. Just a few minutes later. Where's it at? Glencoe Elementary. Hey, are we practicing this week? And this will go on for hours. Gary, am I lying? Does this not happen? I've sometimes actually gotten so fed up with them, like, see last response. I can only type. Are, are, are we meeting at, at the old gym? Like, where are you making? Are you making this up? Are you guys getting together? And this is on a group text. So everybody in the text train is getting the same group of text. And I want to go, are all of you seeing this? And then finally, it'll be Wednesday. Are we practicing this week? To the same text. And I'm like, are they seeing it? Yes, it's still on there. It's still, it's still happening. It could not be any clearer. But we as humans always miss the obvious. Here Jesus could not get any more clear. It's my church and I'm the one building it. And this is what I'm building it on. And yet we read in Revelation chapter 3. Now every time, I don't know how many of you grew up Baptist or uh, Church of God, Assembly of God, all of that tradition, this is what happens. Every, uh, every invitation, join with me if you've ever seen this, with every head bowed and every eye closed. If there's somebody, I see that hand. I, you know, we're going to sit on the fifth verse of just as I am, right? One I see that hand. I see that hand. I one time peeked as a kid and nobody was raising their hand and I thought that was scandalous. It's like, he's lying! There's no hands! And they'll read the text from Revelation chapter 3. Right now, there's somebody out here and you're feeling that heartstring being tugged by Jesus. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is knocking at your door, isn't he? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever been in an invitation where you had that? On the 16th verse of Just As I Am, Jesus is standing at that door knocking. Well, if you read the text, the actual words that that says, let me read it. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is talking to the church in Laodicea. I hope I'm not making anybody mad here. But he says to them, he says, um, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. With me, the one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And as I also conquer and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Jesus is not some poor, pathetic beggar standing at the door of your heart knocking in this image. In this image, he's standing at the door of his own church. And he's not begging them. He's saying, if you want to conquer, open the door and get on board with what I want to do. You see, it's his church. And the way that we're victorious is not doing our own thing, but joining in with him as he will be victorious. You see the difference? It's not some poor, sad Jesus who's just hungry, standing at the door, please let me in. It's Jesus knocking on the door saying, hey, idiot, I told you how to do this. 
It's like Jesus is screaming at the TV, run the ball. <laughs> if you're getting eight yards of touch, what else do you need to do? Well, Jesus said, I told you how I was going to build my church. Why don't you stop coming up with programs of your own and get on board with what I said to do? So let's look really closely at what he said he would build his church on. First, Peter said, Jesus is the Christ. Now that word Christ, uh, you know, I spent most of my life thinking that the word Christ was just Jesus' last name. He's Jesus Christ, right? That's his last name. Mr. and Mrs. Christ. No, the word means something. It's come from the word Christos, which means appointed one. The Septuagint in the Old Testament, when it came to the word Messiah, they translated it as Christ, Christos. They used this term. And it just means someone who's anointed or appointed to do something. We see it in Psalm 22, the, uh, 2, 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed and that word there in the Septuagint is used as Christos. It's just the one who God has anointed and appointed for a task. And so the Bible makes it really clear what the task is that Jesus was appointed for. In Romans 5 we read, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus was appointed for uh, the task to come to this earth and live a sinless life and then die so that there could be that holy transaction where his holiness is accounted to us and our wickedness and our sin was attributed to him. And so God's wrath on him. That was what his task was as he came. The second thing we see is his task is Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. He came as a shepherd looking for lost sheep. You know, there was a, a phrase in the 90s that floated around that everybody uses. We want to be a seeker sensitive or seeker-friendly church. As we look at church growth, right now, if you looked at my Facebook feed, half of the posts would be eight things that churches do that run away visitors. Eight ways to grow your church in a really fast methodology. And it's all going to talk about what we need to do is make the church comfortable for lost people to come in here. So we need to sing songs that they're familiar with. We need to take, I guess, ACDC songs and put some Christian lyrics on it and jam out. And then we need to, uh, whoa, whoa, hey, wait, you might have some country folks. So we take a Garth Brooks song and we, we throw, take Baby Baby and replace Jesus, Jesus. And we sing that and we, we want lost people to feel comfortable when they come to church. That was the movement of all the 90s. That was the, the purpose-driven church concept that we've got to make church comfortable. The problem with that is, is, is the Bible says there's none that seek after God, no, not one. And the one who's the seeker in the Bible, throughout the Bible, in the story of the prodigal son, whenever we see what the father's doing, the seeker, the one who's doing the seeking, isn't the person, it's the God. So to make church a seeker-friendly church, really, we need to say, what are we doing Godward? Because he's the one who's seeking and saving the lost. 
So when Peter said, you are the Christ, it means that Jesus was the anointed one and he was appointed to specific tasks. He was appointed to die, to live, and he was appointed to seek. He was the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, for the first three or 400 years of Christendom, that idea of son, that idea of the, the firstborn confused people because they thought, well, there was a time when Jesus wasn't, and it, it, it was Jesus eternally son? Or was it, what does that word son mean? And so I want to look at that a little bit. We know that, that in, I want, to, I want to throw a quote up here really quick because this really helped me. In Jewish culture, a dignitary's adult son was deemed equal in stature and privilege with his father. The same deference demanded by a king was afforded to his adult son. The son was, after all, of the same essence as his father, heir to all the father's rights and privileges, and therefore equal in every significant regard. So when Jesus was called son of God, it was understood categorically by all as a title of deity making him equal with God, and more significantly, of the same essence as the Father. This is precisely why the Jewish leaders regarded the title Son of God as high blasphemy. In fact, we know that because in John 5, 18 it said, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And so when Peter said, you are the Christ, you're the appointed, anointed one of Christ, you are the son of the living God. That wasn't saying that he was subordinate. It was saying you are equal to the living God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It was a claim of deity. And sometimes we need to be careful in the church. If we're, we're making uh, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, the bedrock that we build this church on, we need to be careful that we don't forget that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. John chapter 1 says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is not your homeboy. Jesus is not your papa. And I've said that before. People go, what do you mean by that? I I mean that Jesus isn't the guy that you can sin and do whatever you want to do and then crawl up in his lap and he's not stressing on your sin. He's just going to give you a silver dollar and say, there, there, son, I love you. That's not his role. In fact, the Bible says that he came to claim us as his people and he as our God. And that means there's a change in the way that we live. If we in the church are no different than the world around us, what are we offering? I'm not saying that we're supposed to be perfect because we can never attain that. But I'm saying that we're supposed to be different. The world should be able to look at your life and say, hey, there's something weird there. There's something out of kilter. We should really confuse people in that when we talk about sin, we don't never, ever, ever say, hey, that sin's okay. But we love on people sacrificially. The world should be absolutely confused by us. You know, the guy saying that, I never see him drink, but every time I turn around, there's some guy that I know is a, a drunk that's over at his house. 
I, we had, had some neighbors when we lived in, in uh, Dallas that were, that were homosexual, and we would have them. No, it wasn't in Dallas. It was in Birmingham. And we would have them over for dinner, and we would tell them about what God was doing in our life. We loved on them, and it confused them all over the place. They kept expecting me to whip out my Ryrie and hit them in the head with it. That's the sort of lifestyle that we should live. We don't cotton to because we know, we understand that what sin ultimately does is destroys people. So we're never going to justify that. But we love people in a way that the world can't question. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember when Jesus was debating the Sadducees, about whether or not there would be a resurrection. And Jesus said, you do err concerning the scripture. God said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He said this to Moses. God is the God of the living and not the dead. God is the great I am. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His standard doesn't change. We change. This world changes. But his standard never changes. And we better be in that book so we know what it is. Jesus said, or Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So that's the bedrock that this church should be built on. That we as a church are wrapped up in him, in magnifying him. And we said evangelism has to happen because worship isn't happening. Jesus deserves the praise of everybody in Etowah County. He is such an awesome God that we've got to tell other people about Jesus so that they will come and worship him. And the thing that we often fail to realize is when we say that that's the bedrock that the church is built on, we can walk away from that, but we cease being the church when we do that. When we start being about all other kind of things other than Jesus and making disciples for him, we can still meet probably for a good 50, 75 years. Uh, the, the term in, in uh, church life is a zombie church. It's died, but it's still moving. Any of you know of any churches around here that are that way? There's no life in them. But they're still kind of struggling along. They're zombie churches. They're... they're They're dead. They just haven't quite run out of energy yet. The way for that church and the way for this church to come back home is to lift up the Son of Man, to be all about Jesus. It ain't about me. It ain't about you. I've said it from the pulpit. In fact, I'm going to let you in on a secret. I've preached this same sermon the first time I was ever allowed to preach in this pulpit on December 29, 2013. And I've preached it every January 1st since then because I want us to remember. I want us to keep in the forefront of our mind that this ain't my church. I may be the under-shepherd of this church, but it's not Tom Harrison's church. It's not the deacon's church. It's not the elder's church. It's not whoever gives the most church. It's Jesus' church. And the moment we change that and we start doing it like it's my church or it's somebody else's church, we cease being a church. We're a religious club. And I don't want to be a part of a religious club. I want to be a part of something that's going to have an impact for eternity. And that's why Jesus is standing at the door knocking. Come join with me. I'm going to conquer. 
whether you join with me or not, I'm going to conquer. Why don't you come and participate? And as we do what Jesus has called us to do, as we are about making disciples, as we are about living up, lifting up the Son of God, then we get to see miracles happen every day. There are people in this room that when I met you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There are people in this, everybody in this room at some point in your life was of no value to anybody. And God was able to redeem you and restore things in your life and now use you to build his kingdom. Isn't that awesome? He doesn't just save us and go, yeah, okay, you're not going to go to hell. He saves us, changes us into his image, and then puts us to work for him. So, Jesus said, Peter, on that rock, I will build my church. And I want us to understand fully and completely that this church has many names that's used throughout the Bible called the assembly of the saints it's called the church of the living god it's called the branch of god's planting it's called the house of god it's called the church of the firstborn it's called the congregation of the saints god's husbandry family in heaven and earth it's called god's building it's called the flock of god it's called the fold of christ it's called god's heritage it's called the bride of christ it's called the holy city it's called the pillar and ground of truth but whatever you call it it's his And we see the end of the story in Revelation 19. And then I saw heaven open, and behold, on a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself, and he is clothed in robes dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we have the privilege of serving him. And we have the privilege of joining with him in what he's doing. Not only does he say, I will build my church, he's the one building it. I know that all of us who work in ministry, it's so easy to get caught up in numbers and, and numbers are important, actually. You know what? Every number of an attendance sheet is important because that number represents a soul. And what we as a church are about is about people. Remember the th thing? Let's see if I can do it right uh, without accidentally shooting everybody a bird. Here's the church. Here's, here's the steeple. Look inside and see the people, right? That's what the church is. We teach that to little kids. If this building burnt to the ground tomorrow... North Glencoe Baptist Church would still be a church as long as all of us are here. Which means that the heart and the, the spirit and the attitude and everything about this church is made up of what you think and what you love and what you long for and what your heart's desires are. 
And so it's important that we're all in the same boat and we're all in the same place. But it, sometimes we can get caught up. I, 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 when I was in seminary, we had a class that, you, you, uh, that I took that was practical pastoring. And, and this, one of the, the professors, Dr., uh, Reverend Motley, would say, a pastor's job is not unlike a coach. You're one bad month away from getting fired always. And you know that that's true. And so that if you just resign yourself to that, you realize that you've always got to kind of stay ahead of the power curve. It, it's, it's hard for me not to go look at the giving report on Sunday afternoons and go, ooh, yeah, I'll be employed one more week. Okay, we're good. But in doing that and getting caught up with that, what you can do is develop this idea, no matter where you are, if you're working in the nursery, if you're wor- working as a, as a pastor, if you're working as a, in the choir, of thinking that it's my responsibility to grow the church. But that's not what Jesus said, is it? He said, I will build my church. It's our responsibility to ensure that the depth is there. It's God's responsibility to ensure that the breadth is there. Do you understand what I'm saying? We make sure that church is always about Jesus, that depth. That we're not in here, this is not a rah-rah time, this is not a time, this is a time for us to go deep in God's word. This time that we do on Sunday morning, this is a time for us as Christians to grow, to be fed. This is a time for us, if you will, it's like we're in a battle out there during the week. We're fighting during the week, we're fighting against ourselves, we're fighting against the world. And we come together on Sunday morning and this is the time for us to get patched up. This is the time for us to get hydrated. This is the time for us to get ready to go get back in the fight, right? And so it's our responsibility to make sure that here at this church that we're making it about what it's supposed to be about. It's our responsibility to tell other people about Jesus. It's our responsibility to open our mouths. It's our responsibility to do all this stuff. But it's God's responsibility to harvest, not ours. I can't make somebody get saved. Charles Spurgeon tells the story of he was walking and being interviewed by someone from the London Times. And as he's walking and being interviewed, this guy comes up to him who's very obviously drunk and intoxicated and says, hey, you saved me at one of your, your, your rallies that time. And Charles Spurgeon turned to the reporter and said, this looks like somebody that I saved. I can't save anybody and neither can you. Our responsibility is to make sure that what we do here, what we do when we're, if you're teaching a children's Sunday school class, that those kids are getting exposed to the gospel. It's our responsibility to make sure that we're preaching the gospel to each other in our interactions. It's our responsibility to come along beside each other and love each other. It's God's responsibility to grow his church. And we need to remember that. Because if we get tied up in whether or not there's 20 empty seats or 50 empty seats in here on Sunday morning, that will drive you crazy. And it's God who brings the increase. I will build my church. And then the final statement is, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The phrase that's gates of hell is a Jewish expression meaning realm of the dead. It just means death. It's a euphemism for death, that death will not prevail against it. 
that nothing that comes against the church is going to overwhelm it. Which is something that we all need to realize. Because everybody in this room, I hate to break this to you, we're all going to die. And so ultimately we're all replaceable. I'm replaceable, you're replaceable. That's not the important aspect. The thing is, is the church of Jesus Christ, as long as it's faithful to you are the Christ, the son of the living God, is indestructible. The government can try to shut down the church. It's not going to work. We see that throughout history. For the last 2,000 years, as governments try to crush the church, it makes it grow. Death is not going to do it. There's not one 2,000-year-old member of any church. There's some that we think might be that old, but it's not accurate. I think about how as we've gone through this election cycle, as we look at the world around us, It's hard not to to be depressed as we see things, just crazy stuff where uh, there's a pastor in Canada who's gone, has literally been put in jail and fined for reading a Bible verse because somebody in his congregation wrote it down and it found it offensive. This is in Canada. We're not talking about some weirdo country in Europe or, or in some Muslim country. We're talking about Canada. And that we look at that and we look at wicked, evil men who seem to get whatever they want. You know the idea that that we all kind of think in the back of our head of uh, what goes around comes around. And eventually, sometimes we watch people's lives and they do whatever they want to. And it seems like they just keep making money. Habakkuk was in the same boat. Habakkuk was a prophet and he saw that God was, in fact, using an evil, wicked nation to punish Israel. And so this is what Habakkuk wrote in Habakkuk 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for your help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save Why do you make me to see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. You ever felt like that? That ever been your prayer? Have you ever watched the news and been like, God, are are you napping? Am I the only one seeing this? It's like every time we turn on the news, you can see some person has gone in and killed 50 people or some person has hunted down a group of cops in this city or this thing has happened or that thing has happened. And we watch the news and we're like, God, are you deaf? Are you missing it? And so Habakkuk took himself to a tower and said, God, I'm not leaving until you answer me. So he kind of represented all of us. And this was God's response. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. Astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. 
That verse is outside that door, I think. Because if we will simply... The whole principle of Christian ethics is this. No matter what the rest of the world does, I'm going to do what I know is right. And if we as a church were to just be foolish enough, ignorant enough, as my Christians were quoted during the election cycle, I don't remember who said it, if we could just be Scripture-shackled rubes enough to where we just believe this, oh, what God could do with us. Look among the nations and be astounded. God wants to use us. The Bible says it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The question we have to ask ourselves is, as we come into this new year, in 2017, am I going to do what I want to do, or am I going to get on board with what Jesus wants me to do and thus be victorious? Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to get a new truck and a pony. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be, woohoo, yeah. It doesn't mean that. But what it means is, is that in Christ, we are more than conquerors. That no matter what comes into your life, that God can use that. That God can build on that. In fact, we read in Romans chapter 8, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are free. So as we come to a time of invitation, with no heads bowed and every eye open, Mark, you queuing up just as I am? <laughs> Let's take this January 1st, this privilege of only once every seven years having, uh, or six years with leap year, I don't, I don't know, every so often, uh, having uh, New Year's Day on a Sunday. Let's rededicate ourselves as a church and as, as individuals to say, this year... This church is going to be focused on lifting up Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you're in this room, and in your heart, Jesus is just a good teacher or he's somebody you heard about, and you've, you don't have a relationship with him, grab me. I would love to walk you through how to make him the Lord of your life. And if you're looking for a church home, Join us. I am super excited about what God's going to do with us here as we get on board with what He wants to do. Father God, Lord, we pray that you would apply your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.